So we're looking at Colossians 4, verses 3 to 6. And um, there are greetings that follow this as well, but in part for the sake of the kids being in, I'm not going to read all those final greetings this morning, but do take the opportunity to um, read them yourself at home. Uh, They are God's word. It's not that they're insignificant at all. But we're going to be looking at verses 3 to 6 today. And the title I've given this morning's message is Making the Gospel Known. Making the Gospel Known. So, without further ado, let's read from Colossians 4, verse 3. Here is what God's Word says to us this morning. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So this morning, as I say, is our very last Sunday in this letter to the Colossians. For 22 Sundays... Spread across eight months, we have been exploring its riches together. And and hasn't it been a rich and encouraging letter? One so full of Christ, so full of rich spiritual food for our souls, and one so full of wisdom and help for our everyday lives. Not that it should surprise us, of course, that it's connected with us and that it has spoken into our lives. It is, of course, God's living, breathing word. And as we've seen, our story as 21st century Christians today is very much the story of the first century Colossians that it was written to. We, like them, are those to whom the message of the gospel has come and like them, it has borne surprising and miraculous fruit in our lives. Like them, in the kindness of God, the gospel has not only saved us, but it is at work within us, producing Week by week and day by day, more faith and hope and love and thanksgiving and a knowledge of God's will for our lives. Our lives have been transformed and made eternally better by what we have come to believe about the Lord Jesus. And all of that has happened because we have heard about Jesus in the message of the gospel. And so I think the important question that arises, or it certainly arises in Paul's mind at the end of this letter, at the end of such a gospel-rich letter, is what can we do to ensure that others might have the same opportunity to hear this good news about Jesus as well, and through it be saved and raised and have their lives transformed forevermore as we have done? What part can we play in making the gospel known? That's the question this final section of the letter answers for us before, gets, before Paul gets to his closing remarks. What part are we called to play in making the gospel known? And honestly, I think the answer we're going to find here will both surprise us with its simplicity and even free us from many of our biggest fears about evangelism. Here Paul lays out three key things that every Christian is called to do in order to play our part in making the gospel known. So he says we are quite simply to pray, to walk, and to speak. 
to pray, to walk and to speak. Those are our three headings this morning, the three things Paul draws our attention to. First of all, pray. This is verses 3 and 4. Verse 3, he says, At the same time, pray also for us. And right off the bat, we notice that the the first thing Paul calls the Colossians to do to make the gospel known is not actually to go and preach like Paul, but to pray for Paul. To pray for those who preach. Pray for us, says Paul. And the us here surely refers to Paul and his various missionary partners that he goes on to mention in uh, verses 7 to 17. So we didn't read about them, but he's saying, pray then for Tychicus, pray for Aristarchus, pray for Mark, for Justus and Epaphras, pray for Luke, the beloved physician and frequent companion of Paul on those missionary journeys. Pray for those who preach. And this here, I think, is is so important to realise that the typical Christian is not expected to share the gospel in exactly the same bold public way that Paul and his companions did. You and I are not failing somehow as Christians if we're not preaching like Paul or George Whitfield or Billy Graham or Glenn Scrivener. We are not all apostles or preachers or evangelists or teachers. Now we do all have a vital part to play in making the gospel known, but we are not all expected to make the gospel known in the same way. And here's why I think this is so important for us to realise. If we spend most of our life feeling paralysed by guilt or fear in relation to a certain kind of evangelism that we, we think we ought to be doing but we feel completely inadequate to do it, well then we'll potentially end up distracted from and uh, neglectful of the actual kind of mission, the actual kind of evangelistic ministry that God does in fact call the vast majority of Christians to do. The kind of every Christian ministry that Paul says begins here actually with praying for those whom God has especially gifted to teach and preach, whether they be uh, evangelists or teachers, missionaries, pastors or Sunday school leaders. And then second, he tells them what to pray for those who've been set apart to preach to pray that they would have an opportunity to share the gospel clearly. So look again at verse 3. He goes on, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. This is actually quite a remarkable request here from Paul, because where is Paul writing from? He's writing this letter from prison. And so none of us, I'm sure, would be shocked or surprised or thought, think any, any less of Paul if his prayer request at the end of the letter was for a literal open door from his prison cell. That would be fair enough, wouldn't it, to pray for that kind of open door. But he makes no mention of that at all. Instead, his prayer request and priority is for a quite different kind of door to be opened for him a new door of opportunity to go on declaring the mystery of Christ. He knows as well that it's God who ultimately opens these kinds of doors for every new gospel preaching opportunity. He knows it's God too who is alone able to open that most tightly locked door of all, the the, the locked door of the human heart, so that those listening to the gospel might actually hear and believe it. 
And so Paul knows that the prayers of other believers, including the Colossians, including us, play an absolutely vital role in his ministry. In fact, their role in prayer is no less important than his role as an apostle and preacher. Just think about what's happening here. Here is Paul, surely one of, if not the most gifted, able and courageous evangelists ever to have walked the earth. At times he seems like a one-man gospel army and we might look on at him and feel totally useless in comparison. Yet Paul knows better than anyone how utterly essential it is that he be in partnership with other Christians who will pray for him in his ministry. He knows that the prayers of God's people really do make all the difference. Which leaves me thinking, if the great apostle Paul was so dependent on the prayers of a church full of Christians, how much more are everyday pastors, teachers, missionaries and evangelists in need of the same? Uh, Charles Spurgeon, as some of you will know, was often known as the Prince of Preachers. And over his lifetime, many, many thousands of people came to faith through his preaching. But whenever people asked him what lay behind his church's fruitfulness, he always pointed not to himself, but he would sometimes actually literally take people down to the basement of his church building. And he would point to the hundreds of people who came before the service to pray fervently and eagerly for God's blessing on their Sunday meeting. He said any success that he had came from God in answer to their prayers. And he called that pre-service prayer meeting the church's boiler room. Because the prayers of those who gathered there were the true spiritual power source behind his preaching. As those Christians gathered together to call on God, to call on the Holy Spirit, to come and bless the meeting of his people and the preaching of the gospel. Spurgeon said, if the engine room is out of action, then the whole mill will grind to a halt. We cannot expect blessing if we do not ask. And on another occasion, he told his fellow pastors, brethren, we shall never see much change for the better in our churches in general till the prayer meeting occupies a higher place in the esteem of Christians. Let me just take the opportunity then to say this morning that on behalf of Pete and I, how much we feel our need of your prayers each Sunday as we endeavour to preach the mystery of Christ, to, to proclaim the gospel, as too do those who teach it out in our children's ministry on a Sunday as well. We feel the weight of that responsibility. We are very aware of how fruitless our efforts will be without the blessing of the Holy Spirit on his word. And, and so we just want to say, I know Pete's not here, but, but we want to say how very grateful we are for all of those who pray for us at various times in the week, uh, but especially on a Sunday morning. If I could draw one practical application from verses 3 and 4 though today, it would be to simply encourage more of us to try and come to the pre-service prayer meeting that we have each week. Uh, we meet at 10 past 10 in the little room out there. Uh, we, and we know it's not possible for, for, for a number of you to come because of commitments at home or commitments already here in the building. But that meeting is like our Sunday service boiler room. And I do believe that God might give us even more greater gospel fruitfulness in our services if more of us just gathered there together beforehand to pray each Sunday. 
the, the, the good news here, the, the, the wonderful encouragement, is we all have a vital part to play in our Sunday gatherings and in our ministry beyond that as a church as well. And the part of the one who prays is no less important, perhaps it's even more important, than the part of the one who preaches. As Derek Tidball once said, I'm sure that we shall discover in heaven just how vital the hidden prayer of multitudes of unknown saints has been in making the upfront ministry of others effective. The first part then that every Christian is called to play in making the gospel known concerns how and for whom we pray. The second concerns, our second heading for this morning, how we walk. This is verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. So we've begun already. We've focused on those called in a more public way to make the gospel known through preaching and teaching. But, the, but we've seen that the, vast, uh, the, the beginning of our responsibility is on us to pray for those who preach. But it doesn't end there. The responsibility of us as Christians together doesn't begin and end with praying for those who preach. We are all called as well, certainly, to personally point people to Jesus. But notice here, as Paul now begins to describe what our own personal Christian witness will look like, he hones in, first of all, on our life and behaviour before he gets to talking about our words and conversation. We might expect him to go straight to what we say, but he goes first to how we live and walk and behave. And I think that order there is very intentional. Because what we are as Christians gives credibility to what we say as Christians. Our lives are meant to commend the authenticity of our message. Uh, imperfectly, yes. But still there should be this clear connection between our conduct and our confession. Or, or as Pete helpfully said to me recently, oftentimes we're called to be the gospel before we have an opportunity to speak the gospel. So how then should we conduct ourselves towards other people who aren't yet Christians, especially when we long to see such spiritual outsiders be rescued and redeemed and become insiders in God's family with us? Well, first of all, Paul is saying here, we are to walk in wisdom. And this, of course, is not the first time Paul has talked about the Christian life as a walk in this letter. It's actually the third Back in chapter 1, he talked of the Colossians, uh, chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, being filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Then in chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him. And now in chapter 4, it's as if Paul's just adding on. He's just adding here. And do remember to keep walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, even when you're with those who don't know him and love him as you do. Paul is calling us to live out our faith and behave in a way pleasing to the Lord wherever we go and whoever we're with. It's nice and simple, really. Wherever we are, whoever we're with, we are to live out our faith in a way that pleases the Lord. And so that strange idea, maybe you've heard it, some Christians sometimes have, of becoming just like the world in order to reach the world. Well, that's certainly not Paul's evangelistic strategy. In fact, that idea is nothing more than hypocrisy. 
It's the opposite of a loving, compelling witness because we're meant to show by our changed lives that we really do believe what we say we believe. And to live like that in a fallen and ungodly world is not easy. It requires real wisdom. Wisdom to not just go with the flow or blend in with the crowd. Wisdom to please the Lord rather than please other people. Wisdom to live differently, to love people, and to stand out by virtue of the choices we make and the generous grace that we show to others. As one uh, German reformer from the 1500s with, I think, the most manly name you've ever heard, his name was Wolfgang Musculus. (laughs) As he once said, truly he walks wisely, who is the sort who lives among people in a manner that does not hide the fact that he is a Christian. He does not fear or annoy them, nor does he act unreliably, unstably or hypocritically. Rather, he is polite and of a peaceable disposition. It is inevitable that about such a person they say, this is a good man, a good woman, because they are a Christian. Our everyday conduct really, really matters. John Woodhouse writes, how we treat people, how we speak to people, what we do and what we don't do, such conduct matters. Before you start worrying about whether or not you should be sharing the gospel with the person who serves you coffee, consider how you're behaving. Are you walking in wisdom? The wisdom that comes from knowing Christ as Lord, making the best use of the time, bearing fruit in every good work. I know it may not seem like such a life makes much of an impact in the often mundane routine of the everyday. Maybe you do go to a coffee shop every day to buy a coffee and you just, it's just, you just do it out of routine and habit. It seems very insignificant and unimportant. But in reality, the most effective missionaries are often ordinary Christians living and working in an ordinary city like Bristol, demonstrating with just simple, consistent honesty uprightness and integrity, the truth and power of God's mighty saving grace that is in the gospel. Our life and our conduct could not be more vital to our witness. And as Paul goes on to remind us in the second half of verse 5, there's also a great urgency for us to live this way and walk this way. For he says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Uh, And in a very similar passage in Ephesians 5, he adds, because the days are evil. We're to make the best use of the time because the world in which we often get so comfortable has an end date. It has an expiry date. Because the people around us are cut off from God and headed for judgment if they don't come to know Jesus. And so Paul's instruction here is is literally to be like bargain hunters to snap up that which is in short supply, to seize the time that we have left to walk wisely before other people. Like a, like a bargain hunter on Black Friday or Cyber Monday or whatever your favorite sale day is of the year, that that little Amazon clock is ticking. Time is running out. The opportunity to conduct ourselves wisely toward outsiders, to have our lives be a powerful witness to the power of the gospel, is in short supply. It won't always be there, just as that bargain in the shop window won't always be in the sale. 
Although it does depend which shop you go to. Some shops seem to have perpetual sales. Um, but that doesn't help us this morning. So it's on us to act now. Rather than put it off until later. It's on us to walk in a wise and godly manner now. Rather than put off living as salt and light until later. Maybe, we, maybe we're tempted to put that off until we've settled down or we've enjoyed our rebellious phase or we found more worldly, and worldly success and security first. No, the time to live in a godly, wise and Christ-like manner is now because the time is short. And people need to see something of the power of the gospel displayed here and now in our lives. And just to encourage us further, uh, I wouldn't do a show of hands, but, but I wonder how many of us here this morning were led to Christ in large part by the simple example of another Christian believer who walked in wisdom towards us before we were saved, whose simple way of living out the Christian life commended the truthfulness of the gospel to us because they were determined to make the best use of their time in their relationship with us. I suspect it was many of us, if not all of us. In God's hands, your life and my life, warts and all, really can be the seal of authenticity for outsiders to convince them of the truth and the goodness of the gospel that we believe. The gospel that we so long that they would come to believe as well. So here's where we've been so far. The part that God calls every Christian to play in making the gospel known Begins with praying, then with walking. Thirdly and finally, it also involves us speaking. Okay, so kids, this is our third and final part. You are doing a brilliant job this morning. Thirdly and finally, we are indeed to speak. Verse 6. While our conduct is so important, God's and Paul's, God's gospel strategy for Christians is not just to preach the gospel and, if necessary, use words. Maybe you've heard that saying. It's not just preach the gospel and, if necessary, use words. No, we are most certainly called to use our words as well, to point people to Jesus by lip as well as life. But just what kind of words are we meant to try and speak? If we're not all gifted to publicly teach and preach, how ought we to use our words in ways that will still Help lead people to Jesus. First of all, Paul says in verse 6, let your speech always be gracious. Paul's focus here now for us is very much on our everyday speech and conversation. He's referring to all of our speech. Those, uh, is it 10 to 20,000 words a day that we're supposedly meant to speak? Whether we're talking about food or football or finance or Jesus all of our speech is to be marked by the grace that we ourselves have received and enjoyed and experienced from God in Jesus. And that's even in difficult situations and difficult conversations. John MacArthur writes, whether undergoing persecution, stress, difficulty or injustice, whether with your spouse, children, believers or unbelievers, in all circumstances, believers are to make gracious speech a habit. To speak with grace means to say what is spiritual, wholesome, fitting, kind, sensitive, purposeful, complimentary, gentle, truthful, loving and thoughtful. Paul wrote in Ephesians 4 verse 29, 
Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. And then, when we do get the chance to especially speak about Jesus, how much more vital still that the way we do it is gracious, not combative or frustrated or antagonistic towards those who disagree with us. When the opportunity comes to speak of Christ, we need to all the more do it in a gracious way. Perhaps you've heard the saying, the medium is the message. I think it was a, a 20th century uh, thinker who coined that phrase, the medium is the message. And he was making the point that the manner in which a message is delivered often has even more impact than the content of the message itself. So as uh, Mark Maynell uh, reflects on this, he says, so you might decide to stencil the words, give peace a chance, or even Jesus loves you onto the side of a missile with the best of intentions, but the medium, in this case a nuclear warhead, will totally eclipse your message. So it's no good, verse 6 is saying, strapping the gospel to a hostile tone or a proud attitude or to self-righteous impatience and condescending speech. If the message we're sharing is one of divine grace, then the speech with which we communicate it, the, the words and the tone and the manner must also be full of the richest kindness, courteousness and grace. Let your speech always be gracious. Secondly, our words should also be seasoned with salt. And, and what that immediately made me think of was, does anyone remember the old um, uh, salt and shake crisps? Uh, where kids, you may not be familiar with this, um, although I think Walkers might have brought them out again as a sort of a retro revival. But there were once bags of crisps that had no flavour. But what they had inside them was a little blue sachet of salt. And so when you open your crisps, you'd hunt out the little blue sachet. You'd rip it open pour the salt into the bag of crisps and you'd grab the top, you'd shake them around and hopefully the salt would uh, sort of vaguely spread evenly around your crisps and you'd be able to enjoy uh, your ready salted, well they weren't ready salted, that was the point, but they are now salted crisps. And if that sachet was missing altogether, that was disaster. In a similar fashion, the everyday conversation of the Christian ought to come with one of those little blue sachets of salt. Our words are to be well chosen. Our speech is to be thoughtful and interesting, not dull or flat or distasteful. Now, is Paul saying here that we all have to be amazing conversationalists? No, not at all. This, this is not about having the gift of the gab or being the wittiest person in the room. Is he saying we should always be speaking about Jesus wherever we go? Well, actually, no. He's simply saying that our speech, all of our speech, should be wholesome and appealing, flavoured by our knowledge of God and his grace, even when most often we're not specifically talking about God and his grace. That's what will make our speech as Christians stand out and be enticing and a blessing. And hopefully, the hope is, um, and I think we can have confidence of this, our wise conduct and our gracious speech will prompt questions from those to whom we speak. So Paul finishes with these words, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. 
Okay, so now comes the opportunity for much clearer and more open and more intentional gospel speech. But, but you, we need to notice the difference, the shift of emphasis between verse 4 that we started with and verse 6 that we've got to now. Paul's task, as we've seen, is to, look at it, declare the mystery of Christ clearly, which is how he, as an apostle, an evangelist, and a preacher, ought to speak. But the Colossian believers are to behave and speak in everyday life in such a way that they'll know how they ought to answer. Or as it says in 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And I just want to read this from Dick Lucas. It's a little bit longer, but I think it's so helpful. I couldn't put it any better than this. He says, We may describe this difference by saying that while the apostle looks for many opportunities for direct evangelism and teaching, the typical Christian in Colossae is to look for many opportunities for responsive evangelism. Their privilege... Our privilege, simply put, is to answer everyone. That is to say, they are to respond to the questions of others rather than initiate conversations on leading topics. They are to accept openings rather than make them. Now, catch this next bit. This is emphatically not to sound the retreat. Paul evidently believes that opportunities for response and explanation are to be found everywhere. For everyone is looking to discover answers about life and its meaning. And Paul evidently thinks that believing Christians should be found everywhere too, ready to take up these frequent opportunities. But it is obvious what strain this removes from conscientious Christians. The pressure to raise certain topics and reach certain people can make it difficult to live or talk normally. In any case, we go to the office to work, not to evangelise. But by being ready and willing to respond, the way is opened to a more serene and successful approach to each day's opportunities. It opens the way, too, for a greater dependence on God's leading as well, for a more relevant and sensitive witness suited to each individual. Now, none of this is to say that we can't go out there if we, if we have the opportunity, if we, have the, if, if we feel able to initiate conversations and create openings for the gospel. But it's not what the typical Christian is called to do or obligated to do in the normal, everyday business of life. And so we shouldn't feel guilty if we're unable to do so. What God calls most of us to do far more effectively instead is to pray so pray and walk and speak that people will turn to us with their questions. And we will find ourselves much freer then to do our best to answer and respond. And those final two words in verse 6, you see them there, each person. Well, that, that also tells us that for most of us, evangelism is meant to be very relational. When a person an individual, a person we meet or a person we know, when they feel comfortable to come to us with a question, we're to answer them as a true individual. In that, in that moment, we're not just to roll out our stock, memorized gospel presentation like a preacher might do, helpfully, at the front of an evangelistic meeting or a Sunday meeting. That's probably not wise in our one-to-one, face-to-face conversations. 
We also don't have to tell them everything about Jesus in one go and squeeze it all explosively into that one opportunity. Like seasoning with salt, most often, as I tried to tell certain members of my family, it's best just to give a tasty pinch with each meal, with every conversation. Don't pour the whole pot on at once. Otherwise, we might prove to be like some kind of terrifying jack-in-the-box. Does anyone else have a, an irrational fear of jack-in-the-boxes? Is it just me? Here's this inquiring friend or colleague. They, they come to us. They're tentatively mustering up the courage to just turn the handle a centimetre or two with the very first serious life question they have for us. And in response, we spring up out of the box at full speed, ready to reel off in this one high-pitched scream, our fullest and finest long gospel presentation. No, instead, we just need to slow down. We need to listen carefully. We need to take their actual question, their problem, their trial seriously. And then consider what answer, what counsel, what comfort does God's word and the gospel have in particular to offer them? And if we're not sure what that is, we can be honest and we can tell them. We can tell them that because their question is really important to us, because they're really important to us, we want to take the time to think about it and come back to them with a real uh, biblical Christian answer. Encouragingly, Derek Tidball writes, all the research done into why people get converted shows that the overwhelming reason is not that they're attracted by clever arguments, but that they are attracted by winsome people. Evangelism is about people, he says, and people are made for relationships. So naturally, love is going to be the key. And so here at the end of his letter to the Colossians, driven by a deep love for perishing people, Paul invites the Colossians and he invites us too to play our part in making the gospel known. Praying for those Christians who are especially gifted for public preaching, teaching and gospel proclamation. Walking wisely toward all of the unsaved people that we daily rub shoulders with and relate to. And thirdly, speaking graciously, intentionally and winsomely to those people in every conversation. Always being ready to give an answer to their questions as they see the faith, love and hope that is in us because of Jesus. That's how you and I are primarily called day by day to play our own important part in making the gospel known. Let's pray.